Aren't sanctions a funny old thing? You know, we talk in the West about sanctions and yet we continue, I say we, I mean the Germans really, continue to pay Russia nearly a billion dollars a day for gas and oil. But of course, in this country, we've taken things rather more seriously. The All England Tennis Club, yes, the hosts of the annual Wimbledon tennis competition, have decided today in their infinite wisdom that they will ban male and female competitors from Russia and Belarus from taking part in the tournament at all. The French Open haven't taken that opinion. And I just wonder about all of this because, of course, they've got some really rather good players. Daniel Medvedev, well, he's a rather good player. He's the second-ranked seed currently in the world. He got through to the fourth round of Wimbledon last year. And Anna Sabalenka, the female player, got through to the semi-finals last year. And there are other very good Russian and Belarusian players. Is it right that they're banned from taking part in Wimbledon? Well, here's my thought on it. This is not the Olympics. This is not the Davis Cup. These players are not representing their country. They're representing themselves. They just happen to come from a country that is not in favour at the moment. And we can go back through history and we can find national representative teams being banned from all sorts of events. In modern times, I can think of no parallel. Think back to when South Africa was shut out of world cricket, shut out of world rugby. Yet Gary Player, who was South African, continued to play in the British Open, continued to play on the US tour because he was there representing himself, not representing the nation that he came from. And I just think we're taking this way too far. If we start to ban individuals on the basis of their nationality, dare I say it, even their race, where does this all end up. I think this is over the top. I think it's wrong. And, and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter whether these players condemn the invasion of, of Ukraine or not. Some will, some won't. Imagine if you're a sports player, you want to play in Wimbledon, your mum and dad are getting on a bit, living in Moscow. Are you really, are you really going to condemn the Putin regime and put them in danger? And actually, should anybody ever ask you, to be in that position. So I am really, really disturbed by this. I think it's wrong. I think it's over the top. And as I say, all the while the Germans <laughs> keep on buying huge amounts of gas and oil. What does it all mean? I think the All England Club have got this wrong. I want to know what you think, please. Tell me, is it right? Is this right to ban these tennis players. Farage at gbnews.uk. I don't expect there to be any shortage of opinions coming in. Well, joining me to debate this, to discuss this, is Amanda Owens, leading sports and performance psychologist and former tennis player. Um, I do understand that after World War II, there was a short ban on German players, but that's kind of 75, 80 years ago. Yeah. I cannot think, can you, in modern times, of any precedent, any parallel to this? No, not, not in the modern game, no. Um, however, I mean, I, I think it's a very strong stance, obviously, by the All England, and they're sort of leading the way, because obviously the WTA and the ATP um, have stated that they don't wish to prevent players from competing. Um, the, the stance that the All England have, have done and, and reporting reportedly have made, um, I think is very important for I think obviously it's a political statement mm. um, and yes it, it does impact um, players professionally because you know they they're they're there to 
for their professional gain and to earn money, but also they love for the love of the sport. So it's uh, I I think I personally think it's for the right reasons. I think it's a very brave and very it's a very strong step by the All England. Um, however, it does grey the area here between obviously sport and politics. Well, what comes next? I mean, for example, there are many who are critical. Um, of some of Israel's actions, you know, could this mean in future we start banning Israeli players? Um, or would that lead to charges of anti-Semitism? I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I get it when it's a national team. I would get it if it was Davis Cup, where the tennis players are representing their country. Yeah. Um, isn't this just a bit too far? I think it's really tricky here. I mean, it's we haven't. I mean, obviously, I'm not. I'm trying not to sit on the fence. I think I <laughs> <laughs> very difficult. You're giving a very good impression. Um, but uh, I think I think it's you know we haven't really been faced with this in tennis before. Um, I think you know we've got atrocities ha uh, happening over in. But Ukraine. how is that the fault of Daniel Medvedev? Well, it, it's the IOC. You see, have, have taken a stance, as you know, uh, that they've uh, stating quite clearly that. Um, athletes should be banned from uh, from competing. I think other sports as well have taken a strong stance. Tennis have not. The French Open. Yes. The French Open, which will precede Wimbledon by, what, three or four weeks or something like that. Yes. The French Open will allow these players to compete. No, absolutely, absolutely. And however, obviously the All England have made this stance. Um, and as I said earlier, the WTA and the ATP have stated as well that they don't wish to prevent players from competing. I... I think I mean, it's a very difficult call to make here. One of the reasons given was that they're really worried that Medvedev will win. Because he most he's, probably would, yes. Because on grass, you know, he's yeah. a very... And it's a slightly different game, obviously. Yeah. Um, and what they wouldn't want is a member of the royal family handing over the trophy. But they could just get someone else to do it, couldn't they? You know, absolutely. But it's, it, I, think, I think it's the, the meaning... That there's been an issue with, uh, within gymnastics uh, regarding one Russian athlete... Um, and I, I think I think it's a, a preventative measure here that it could create a political um, storm. And I think I think as well with what's going on in Ukraine, it's, it's incredibly sensitive. Um, and indeed, you know, we're seeing uh, awful, dreadful, um, uh, you know, I'm not it's a humanitarian I'm, No, I'm not disputing. Disaster. I'm not disputing that at all. I, 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 I'm not disputing that for one moment. I think to take it out on individuals like this is, as I say, I've never seen it before. I quote the example of Gary Player, but there were many other individual yeah. sportsmen and women from South Africa that were still allowed to compete on the world stage. Um, nothing like this has happened in modern times. I wonder what the tennis loving public will make of it. It's going to be very interesting, isn't it? I think there's going to be a huge debate. It's going to be very divisive. Um, you know, as a former player myself, it's, you know, it's a very difficult call to make. And of course, the, you know, it's, a, it's your professional earnings. Mm. It's your living. Mm. Um, and it's Wimbledon. Yes, absolutely. But Medvedev, without a doubt, I mean, he, he was favourite. Um, and yeah, I think he would, have, he would have gone on to win it. Um, and it's going to be a huge shame for tennis that he's not competing. Well, I don't know. We have... Um... Novak couldn't play in the Australian Open, despite having won it nine times previously on vaccine rules. Now we have this tennis, it seems, and global politics are now intertwined very deeply. I know, they need to be a bit more consistent, perhaps. I mean, that's something that perhaps tennis needs to look at. But uh, the All England, one has to applaud the fact that they've been, they've taken a very strong stance, but it's, you know, it's, uh, All right. it's well, unprecedented. Amanda, you've made the case.
You've supported the strong stance taken by the All England Tennis Club. I don't agree at all. I know you don't. But, no. we've, but we've disagreed in a very civil way, and I thank you very much indeed. And I'm looking forward to getting your views back at home. Is this right? I don't believe it is. Amanda takes a different view. Uh, one thing for certain, this is going to run and run and run right up until during and after Wimbledon. Now, Prince Harry, of course, as we know, flew across from America to the Netherlands to, to, to open the Invictus Games. It's been one of his great achievements, and of that there is no doubt at all. We learned subsequently that he popped into Windsor to see the Queen. Fine. That's great. I'm very pleased that he went to see his grandmother. After all, he couldn't even be bothered, could he, to turn up for the remembrance service for his grandfather. And I'm one of those people who thinks he happens to have treated the Queen with the most incredible level of disrespect over the course of the last couple of years, beginning, of course, with that appalling interview with Oprah Winfrey. But Harry's done a big exclusive with NBC's Today Show, and he says he's popped in to make sure she's got the right people around her. And he says, I'm just making sure she's protected. Oh, isn't the Queen oh so lucky to have a grandson as caring and as wonderful as Harry. And if you detect a little hint of sarcasm in my voice, well, you wouldn't be getting it wrong. I wonder what the reaction from the Royal Commentators is to all of this. I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by Ingrid Seward, Royal Commentator and Editor-in-Chief of Majesty magazine and author of Prince Philip Revealed, which is out now. Ingrid, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. I'm, I, maybe you thought my introduction was too sarcastic and too over the top, but it seemed to me he hasn't really given a damn for his grandmother's feelings over the course of the last two years. And now to go on American TV uh, and, and, and to act in this way, it's quite extraordinary. Should we just have a look at a quick clip, Ingrid? of him on that NBC show. How did it feel being back? Um, being with her? Being with her, it was great. It was, it was just so nice to see her. You know, she's on, she's on great form. We always, she's always got a great sense of humor uh, with me and I'm just making sure that she's, you know, protected and got the, the right people around Well, her. You, you make her laugh, that's what she always says. Uh, I, did you do it again? Uh, yes, yeah, I did. Uh, both <laughs> Megan and I had tea with her, so it was, it was really nice to catch up with her. And, you know, home, Home for me now is, is, is you know, for the time being, it's in, it's in, the, it's in it's the, the States. States. And it really, and it feels that way as well. Does um, it? Yeah. It's, we've been welcomed with open arms. Yeah. Um, and it's got such a great community up in Santa Barbara, so. So you feel like good. that's home more for you? Yeah. Ingrid, how did the interviewer know that the Queen says that Harry always makes her laugh? Do tell. Well, obviously, um... Harry had told her that. I mean, because Harry is promoting Invictus Games, and, and as you said earlier, it is his baby, and we all we all think that he's done a brilliant job with it. But he he's obviously got to give something. He can't just, you know, this is American television after all. They're not going to just take a few platitudes. They want a bit more. So when they were chatting pre-interview, uh, she he obviously said, well, you know, the Queen, you know, Her Majesty and I laugh a bit together. She's got a great sense of humour. Why on earth he had to then add that he was you know, concerned about, you know, who was looking after her and if she had the right people around her. I mean, Harry was doing so well, and then he goes and blows it by making a, a really extraordinary statement. And I think everyone, you know, love Harry or hate Harry, would agree with you and me that it was a very, very strange thing to say and bound to irritate 
those at the palace, you know, but I suppose Harry's, you know, he's always feels persecuted, Harry. And I think he's obviously wanted to get his oar in, you know, I'm her grandson, you know, you're mere minions, and I'm going to say what I think. That's how I read it anyway. Yeah, and of course, on this visit, he's had a Netflix film crew with him for most of it, hasn't he? I mean, I mean, they are actually using his connection with the Queen to try and make a lot of money out of a film, aren't they? Well, I think, uh, you know, if, if it wasn't for Harry's connection, if, if Harry wasn't who he was, he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't be anywhere near near where he is now. But I think the Queen is very canny, Nigel. She knows exactly what Harry's up to. But she's also very forgiving. She's a very Christian woman and she doesn't want to make enemies of her grandson. She is very fond of him and I think she probably does find him very amusing. And what would be the point of not receiving him for tea. I mean, tea is quite a formal meal for the Queen. It always has been. Um, there would be no point in not receiving Harry and Meghan. Uh, no, so no, I, I no, think I, no, no, she just says it with a smile and she's very wise and we don't know what she thinks, but I have a fairly good idea. She knew exactly what Harry was up to. Yeah, look, I quite understand. <laughs> of course, of course you want to see her grandson. <laughs> I completely get that. Ingrid, a final thought. I mean, the Jubilee... Uh, this great big Platinum Jubilee is really just a few weeks away now. Uh, we understand that Harry and Meghan will be welcome and will be on the balcony. Is that the right thing in your view? I think they would be welcome, and the Queen has offered the, uh, the the olive branch. You know, please come. If but then Harry himself said he wasn't sure if they were going to come because he's got some issues with the government about security, about his security. So he's in litigation with the British government, and so it might put him in a very awkward position if he was suddenly to turn up with his family demanding. Uh, you know, sort of 100% security wherever he goes. So I think Harry is hedging his bets. It's going to be very interesting to find out. They're always in the news. Ingrid Seward, thank you very much indeed for joining me this evening. Well, we'll see where that one goes, particularly with the Jubilee. I have to say, I think that interview, I think his comments are perfectly appalling. But I've always thought that about him, I have to say. Energy bills. We talked a little bit about this last night. I said I wanted GB News to be involved in a campaign. It seems to me that when we're being told by the bosses of major energy companies that the bills and the problems consumers will have by October of this year will be, and I quote, horrific, it's time something was done. And 25% could be taken off every single person and every company's electricity bill by getting rid of green subsidies. How, just how, do we make it happen? All of that in a moment. Can it really be right to ban players from taking part in Wimbledon on the basis they were born in Russia or Belarus? I feel very uneasy about it indeed. Your reactions. One viewer says, of course it's right. Sanctions have to hit every aspect of Russian society to encourage them to stand up and get rid of Putin. OK, I get the logic of that. Please do tell that to the Germans, won't you? Who also, isn't it interesting... The Germans also, despite other world leaders all agreeing 
as the Battle of Donbass kicks off to help Ukraine with more military equipment, the Germans said no. Well, there you are. David says, Russian athletes, racing drivers, football teams, Olympic teams, etc., cannot be seen to be victorious because this will be used as pro-war propaganda. Well, if it was a national football team, uh, you know, contesting and winning the World Cup, I would understand the logic of that, but these are people who are representing themselves, just as Gary Player did, as a South African golfer. But it was Gary Player that won the Masters, not South Africa. Pauline says, no, it's totally wrong. Jake says, yes, they've been banned from everything else. Please don't tell me there's grounds for a debate on this. I really think there is very, very serious grounds if we're starting to ban individuals because of their nationality, their religion, their race, or whatever else it may be. I think there are very serious grounds to have a good debate about this. Honestly, I do. Des says, disgraceful decision. I understand banning national teams from various sports, but how is it fair to ban individuals from competing? They have families to feed like everyone else. Green levies. Now, you know, if this government, if Boris Johnson is in trouble over Partygate, uh, and by the way, I think he'd be in rather more trouble over Partygate when the next fines come, as they are absolutely bound to. I'd be surprised if he doesn't get two, three or four more fines. But the biggest problem the government faces, the biggest problem actually millions of folk in this country face, is rapidly rising energy bills. We talked about this yesterday. We looked at the testimony put before the parliamentary committee by the big energy bosses, already inundated with thousands of phone calls from decent customers saying, how on earth are we going to pay these bills. And I talked about what the government can actually do. Yes, the 5% VAT on our energy bills, which of course was a Brexit promise, could be removed. But the big one, the big one is the 25% surcharge on our electricity bills, which goes to renewable and social obligations. And I want to fight, I want to lobby, I want to campaign to get this removed. It would give great relief great relief to those who are genuine, gen, you know, genuinely struggling here. Well, joining me is somebody who was a member of Parliament in the 1990s and a former chief executive of Energy UK. It's Angela Knight. Angela, good evening. Good evening. So my question to you is not so much whether we should perhaps, you know, reconsider uh, this 25% on the electricity bills. My question to you is, how do we, how do we get together a campaign of people to make the government shift its position. And I think to get a campaign, you need to be absolutely clear what the campaign is about, Nigel. Yep. You know, is it about abandoning the whole going green agenda or is it about the cost that individuals and companies are paying for in the levy on the bill? Because if it's abandon the green agenda, then that's one campaign. But I don't think that that's the right one. Because in amongst all this green levy uh, and all this, um, you know, all this green levy and policy piece, there's also what we do about the next generation of electricity. And you and I have talked about this before. How do we make our whole system more self-sufficient? What do we do about uh, getting on with building small nuclear and so forth? So in effect, I think that. The way that I would look at it is not removing uh, the green uh, agenda uh, and the self-sufficiency agenda and the insulation agenda, but I think very much, as you say, who pays, how much and for what. 
if yeah. we are going to... Sorry. No, I mean, I mean, you make the point there. You make the point there. I did make this point last night uh, that very, very few commentators, when they talk about these issues and talk about these costs, of course, bring in business. And yeah. we have made so many sections of heavy engineering, of refining, of you know, aluminium production. We've made so many of our manufacturing companies simply close down and relocate that I'm absolutely with you. We mustn't forget business. But I don't think it's being anti the green agenda to say we shouldn't have, after decades of work, we shouldn't have to go on subsidising these things. Now, that is, that, that's, a, that's a very good point. Um, I do question whether we need to subsidise uh, wind farms now to the way that we did in the past, number one. I do think that there's a case of putting a few more things on general taxation. And I do think that there's a case of bringing into play more private money when one is talking about uh, building uh, new generators and smaller generators and so on. And if I was in government, I mean, we all say this, <laughs> if I was in government, what, there is, what government needs to do is just stand back for a moment and have a think through what it is doing, what is the best way of doing it, how to finance things, what is reasonable for individuals and for business to pay, and indeed, should we actually just take a rain check on some of these uh, uh, levies for a period of one or two years? Because I don't think... You know, whilst it's absolutely right, let's go and look at that green levy piece. That also on the bill now is paying for failed suppliers. Now, that's up at 60, 70, 80 pounds already. Um, there, and there's a whole piece in there about networks, because, of course, you've got to get your gas and your electricity to us and to business. But a lot of that sits around the fact that we have to move things, move the transmission in order to connect the wow. uh, new wind farms in. Yeah. So yeah. There, is, there, there is something there that is more holistic. I think government needs to think about it. And I also think they need to be brave. Um, it may well be that they come back, you know, with a plan which says, yes, Nigel Farage, you're earning a decent amount of money as a presenter. You are going to have to pay more for your energy bill. But those people down the road who are really up to the wire, we're actually going to give them much more help. So there's, there's, there's a mixture of things here. But just carrying on, adding stuff on the bill, which we all pay, is, is regressive. And as yes. you rightly point out, it's now a very real problem. And it, it, it is just part of this piece called energy, where the thinking needs to be done again. It's not in the right place at all. Well, 25% on the electricity bill for renewable and social obligations, another 5% on the bill for VAT. And as you pointed out, actually, because of the difficulty of moving this power around the United Kingdom, yeah. other added costs. So we are looking into the 30% uh, that are being added yeah. onto people's bills for all of this. One last thought. I know there are some businesses that are benefiting hugely from all of this. But I don't, even though I've spoken to refiners, I've spoken to metal yeah. bashers, I've spoken to so many people over the, and I, you know, and I worked in the metals industry, so I know a lot of these people. Yeah. I've spoken to so many individual businesses who've been massively disadvantaged compared to France yeah. and Germany and especially America, let alone India and China. Yeah. There's no concerted voice of business, is there, saying, for goodness sake, help us to become competitive, help us to create jobs. And that actually, if you export steelmaking from Redcar to India, 
There's no benefit for global CO2 either. Where are the voices? Where's the lobby? I have been wondering that as well. I think you're quite right. Because, you know, I was going to chip in on you when, uh, a moment ago. Most businesses have got a problem. A few haven't, but most have. Mm. And the competitiveness of the UK is vitally important. And, of course, I'm one for bringing back uh, more jobs and, and more industry into the UK, not sending more of it out worldwide. Your initial question to me was, uh, how do we get a lobby going? Yeah. Well, the first thing that you need with a good lobby is to have a uh, to have a plan of what you want the people you're lobbying uh, to do, and that plan has got to be operational. It's got to be sensible, and it's got to be something that the government can actually implement. Because we're all very good at saying, "I don't want that. I don't want to pay for that. Why did you do this? Why did you do that?" It's unfortunately isn't that easy. I wish it was. If it was easy, it would be done. So it is presenting a sensible uh, alternative route, which may have, you know, taking a, a rain check for a couple of years on certain agendas. And it's presenting that sensible route, which they can do, and marshalling up industry as well, which is the way that you create a good lobby. So carry on talking about it, and so will I. Very good indeed. Angela, you can chip in any time. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. This evening. Yeah, well, there's clearly more work to be done, and I think she put it rather well. Now, let's get to my What the Farage moments. Now, we know, don't we, that motor cars have changed incredibly in the last few years. I mean, the modern motor car, you know, you've got parking sensors, you've got steering wheels that keep you within the white lines on the road, uh, and of course, the plans are fairly shortly for driverless cars. There'll be a change to the highway code. When your car is in driverless mode and you've got no hands on the wheel, you'll be able to watch television as you're going along the motorway on built-in screens. These are new proposals to update the highway code. Yet any use of mobile phones will remain illegal. I don't get the logic of that. Perhaps if somebody else does, they can explain it to me. I don't get it. Now, the cross-channel trafficking of human beings. It has gone up year after year after year. It's going up, actually, every year in multiples, isn't it? You know, a couple of years back, it was just a few hundred. Then, of course, it became a couple of thousand. Then, of course, it became... Eight and a half thousand. Last year, it became a staggering 28 and a half thousand. And this year to date, well, we're pushing right up to 7,000 people who've already been processed through that centre in Dover, let alone those that have got away. That rate, that rate that it's running at now, is exactly four times what it was at this point last year. So if the current trend continues, we're looking at 100,000 people. Of course, maybe the Rwanda plan will happen. Maybe it will get rolled out and act as a disincentive. I'm told again and again and again, these are poor, desperate people fleeing from not just poverty, but from war zones and from terrible things. And I must have been out a dozen times in my channel I've met many of these people crossing face to face. And whilst I don't doubt that some sincerely and genuinely should, cross, should qualify as refugees, what I've seen in many cases are just a group of young men uh, who are coming for economic advantage. Have a look 
Have a look at these videos. These were taken four days ago by people coming from Afghanistan. Uh, and these videos, for those listening on radio, are basically glorifying the trip across the English Channel. Um, they've added music to the videos. They're saying how fantastic it is. In fact, to be honest, the pictures these guys are posing, I say guys because they're all men, the pictures these guys are posing, I mean, it looks like they're on a day out. It looks like a works outing. It is up there on TikTok. It is glorifying crossing the English Channel. It is saying to people what a great option it is. And I guess there are two things really to say about that. Number one, should social media channels be used to actually glorify what is a serious criminal trade with danger attacked? And secondly, you can tell me if you want uh, that these are poor, desperate people, but I have to say, in many cases, they don't look like it. To me, what of the ban of tennis players, men and women from Belarus and from Russia, from Wimbledon? What say you? Daryl says, silly idea, because it makes the West look petty. And did these people invade Ukraine? No. Another says, if it makes the Russian people question if what they're being told is the truth, then yes, it is right. Another says, politics has nothing to do with sports, so it's wrong to ban sportsmen on ideology and propaganda grounds. And lastly, Sylvia says, yes, it is right. Wimbledon is a private club and can ban anyone from playing if they want to. Well, Sylvia, you are, of course, right in saying that it is a private club. They're not breaking any law. They can choose who enters their tournament or who doesn't. I just suggest that discriminating against people just on the basis of where they're born somehow takes us to a new place. I don't believe it's right. I've no doubt we'll talk about this again between now and Wimbledon. Now, continuing with the sporting theme, I'll be joined on Talking Pints by Lisa Mason, somebody who has competed for this country in the Olympics. We'll ask her what she makes of this ban. The GB News Tavern has been declared open. Yes, it's Talking Pints time. Let's have a look, shall we? Let's have a look at tonight's guest, Lisa Mason, Olympic gymnast, gold medalist at the Commonwealth Games. And here she is in action in the 2015 British Gymnastics Championships. <laughs> Welcome, Lisa Mason, to Talking Pines. I have to say, I sort of feel quite dizzy looking at that. <laughs> I still get nervous and butterflies when I watch myself compete, and it's really weird. You, um, sport, it's in the news in a big, big way now. We're used, of course, aren't we, to in the Olympics, in gymnastics, in mm -hmm. all sorts of athletic events. We are used to endless doping scandals mm -hmm. with the Russians, yep. um, not to mention cycling. I mean, sport does have all these problems. Uh-huh. But is it weird? I mean, I don't know how you feel about this. 
But clearly, Russia and Belarus have got some seriously good men and women tennis mm. players, you know, up there competing to win. Is it right to ban them as individuals? What do you think? Personally, I don't think it is. Um, I think that the decisions that are being made by the Russian government are decisions being made by the Russian government. Um, to <laughs> discipline, I guess you would word it as, discipline these athletes for something that they're not doing, that they have openly disagreed with publicly, I don't think it's right. I'm sure there could be a loophole somewhere where, you know, they could compete unattached, if you will, um, not put the Russian but it's flag not, there. But it's not going to happen, is it? Because no. Wimbledon have made this decision. You know, the French Open haven't taken that decision. Yeah. I, I, I worry what precedent it may set. I mean, I really, really do. Mm. But sport, as I say, sport is always, always surrounded by controversy. Absolutely. It's really interesting. I've always sort of thought that young people getting involved in sport is a great thing. Mm -hmm. uh, not just it gets them off the streets, but it teaches them discipline. It teaches them they've got to get up in the morning and do things. Yep. And with you, gymnastics started very, very early, didn't it, in life? It did. I started at five. So, yeah, I was caught um, climbing on my house roof <laughs> with my three <laughs> brothers. Um, so my mother needed to channel my energy somehow and put us all into gymnastics classes. But you, from the age of five, and, mm -hmm. and as you're going through those developmental years, yep. you weren't just doing gymnastics for fun, were you? You were doing, doing gymnastics seriously, training, Yeah, I think I got to the age of around 10, 11, and it was quite adamant that I had a, you know, a talent. Yep. Um, and within gymnastics, you know, it was, especially back then, it was very much, you can only be a gymnast from a certain age. You, you know, once mm. you're an adult, you can't be a gymnast because of the whole Nadia Comaneci mm. thing and mm. everyone mm. looking at that and thinking, that's how you do it. And back in the day, that was how you did it. Um, so it was very much, okay, so if you're going to do this and you're going to, you know, go for the Olympics and, you know, you need to come out of school and you need to live with your coaches and you need to train six days a week, eight hours a day and, you know, not have a childhood and not see your friends. And so how much, how much pressure were you put under? Um, I, the thing is hard. I'm, I was a kid, so I wouldn't really look at it as pressure so much. I think I was very conscious of the fact that I realised how much my family had sacrificed and were sacrificing, not just my mum and my dad, but my brothers also, you know, there were things that they wanted to do. And a lot of the time they couldn't do it because I had a gymnastics competition, for instance. So I think there was this conscious thought in the back of my head, like, you can't just quit, you know, because everyone's relying on you now. Is it everyone. good to put kids under that much? Is it, is it good to put 10 year old kids under that level of pressure and expectation? I think this is where I've always kind of had the disagreement with, especially in diving and gymnastics more so because they're the only sports that allow 15 year olds to compete at the Olympic Games. And I do think it's too much pressure. Um, and there's a big difference between, you know, training a child and putting fear in them to do something because they're not old enough to understand it. So you're putting pressure on them to do something you know that they can do. Mm. But ultimately when you're an adult, you understand it. You understand that you've got to put in the work in order to get a result. And I don't think it's fair you're putting all this pressure on you, these I mean, children. You know, they put you as a kid on prescription drugs. Yes, ultimately, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you don't question it because it's very much like 
okay, well, this hurts, okay, we'll go see the team doctor and they will just give you a nice little bright yellow pill. So. And as long as those pills don't break the rules. Yeah. This is it. But, it, it you know, these are quite troubling questions, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, like I said, my first time round, it was it was very different. Um, things were very different back then. Unfortunately, especially with the whole Gymnastics Alliance, you know, it was very um, real that the fact that these kind of predators and this abuse did mm. and was very much still, and it still is, around in gymnastics and... Other sports too. Other, uh, absolutely, other sports as well. So um, it's 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 very difficult because this all coming out and you know exposing a lot and a lot of it is about re-educating people. And I do believe that people can change. And like I said, when you're you brought up in a in a, an environment where you're taught that this is the only way to do it, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, you have to re-educate people to say, well, actually you know, maybe screaming at them and, and sitting on a 10-year-old to push them down mm. into spits is mm. not the best I, I, idea. I, I, no, there, no, there are questions. However, with you, it kind of worked because you went on, you yes. got to where you wanted to get to, you uh -huh. took part in the Olympics, you took part Commonwealth Games, World Championships. Mm -hmm. I guess, was the highlight the Commonwealth Games? Do you know what? Yeah, Commonwealth Games was so much more fun than the Olympics. I think because um, obviously the Olympics is so many more countries and you've got like the likes of America and China mm. and things like that. Commonwealth Games is a little bit more relaxed. And um, I actually went in there and I won my gold medal on an event that I really wasn't supposed to, to <laughs> win on. I, I messed up on the event that was I could have quite easily walked and won that. But um, yeah, so it was nice because I was so shocked. I didn't even think that I'd make the final. So to win the gold. <laughs> There we are. More clips, you see, <laughs> as we speak. No, I mean, obviously, that's fantastic. And, you know, all that tough stuff you went through as a kid, mm -hmm. but you got somewhere, you achieved things. Mm -hmm. And incredibly, you retired age 19. 18. 18. It just seems incredible. So that's it. You yeah. washed up, you finished. Well, it was basically, I mean, that was the mindset back then. It was, it was very rare for a gymnast to do more than one Olympics. Um, it, it was the mindset of if you've got a woman's body, you're no longer good enough, you know, and that's definitely changing now. And like I said, knowledge is power. And you must have felt very empty. Yeah, I think I was just very lost, I think, you know, and it's kind of you give your life and your soul, your blood, your sweat, your tears to a federation that's supposed to protect you. And, you know, they make you leave school. And you're retired before you're an adult. And then it's kind of like, <laughs> thank you for everything you've done. Yeah. Sort of and live a normal life, yeah. you know, so. Very difficult. Yeah. But then you decided to make a comeback. I did. <laughs> I just wanted to rustle some feathers because everyone was telling me I couldn't. And I was like, I can. Yeah, and some of those clips we saw were, were from as recently as 2015. Yeah. So you've, yeah. you've, you've really come back to it and continued yeah. with it. I. Would you, I mean, I want to ask you this question. Mm -hmm. You know, if you spoke to some parents today, mm -hmm. I may have had a five-year-old daughter, mm -hmm. just as you were, who clearly had an aptitude, mm -hmm. would you recommend they push their daughter hard in gymnastics? I don't think it's uh, a case of pushing your daughter hard. I, I have always been one of these people where I'm like, gymnastics for kids is great, and it's a fundamental sport to put a child into any other sport. It teaches you core stability, balance, coordination, discipline in the sense of concentrating and listening to direction. It's a great first sport 
for a lot of children, I would always say there's no rush. You know, there you don't have to be eight and doing all these hours. And I think COVID happening definitely opened the eyes to a lot of gymnasts and coaches because, you know, you having a week off as a gymnast was an absolute no. You know, you might as well retire. Whereas now they're actually realising with the right training, the right support, <coughs> that you can continue and do high-level gymnastics. I think you could argue that Joe Wick's got many of the youngsters of the nation actually exercising and doing things. He definitely. No, I love Joe. Which is no bad. No, it was good, wasn't He's it? He's fantastic. I had my kids doing some of these workouts as well. So. Do you think schools teach this stuff well? Do schools do, gym, do, schools do gymnastics well? No. <laughs> I, I mean, I go in, I teach, um, teach after-school clubs in, in schools, so that's what I do. Um, I think it's very difficult for schools to have the knowledge to teach gymnastics because there's a lot to cover. Like to cover, you don't you don't have to know everything. I think they have so much pressure on them as teachers anyway to to try and teach somebody how to to roll and jump and mm. coordinate. I was it. terrible at it. <laughs> oh, terrible sure at it. No, I was. I was. All, I was well, good at some sports, but I, I did find it very very difficult. And the biggest controversy, though, of sport, okay. a female sport, it's not Wimbledon. You know what it is. Mm -hmm. It's this whole debate about transgender athletes mm -hmm. and, you know, you can test hormone levels and you can do all those things, but clearly, in the case of Leah Thomas, the swimmer, the mm -hmm. American swimmer, yeah. there's somebody who is six foot three, mm -hmm. who has been through male puberty, who has bigger bone structure, who was ranked in men's swimming, I think I'm right in saying 454th yep. in the world, and is now winning everything. Mm -hmm. And I'm sensing there is now a bit of pushback mm -hmm. against this. Because I, I don't know, Lisa, how you feel about this, but I mean, what is the future of women's sport <clears throat> if people like Leah Thomas are allowed to compete? I... Where's the incentive for young girls to, to, to do what you did? I think... You... I mean, I'm not very knowledgeable on, you know, the the science behind it, the facts, but what I know is if a woman wanted to adapt her hormone level to be faster and stronger, she would have her medals taken from her and kicked out of the sport. Yeah. Um, naturally, men are faster and stronger. And even if you're taking hormones to reduce that, you're still going to be faster and stronger than women as the results from the swimmer is showing. Um, I don't think you're going to have many women that will identify as men competing in the men category for, I mean, obvious be, reasons. Well, there might be one or two. But, there might be but, two, but, one or two, yeah, but yeah. the likeliness of you yeah, being yeah. the best, yeah. again, this is from my... So what do we do? I, I'm, I think they should be allowed to compete. I think that, you know, there should just be really? a category. Ah. Their own category. And okay. I think you have women's, you have men's, and you can have trans for men and trans for women. I think there should, you know, it should be a, a even and fair field to then, play in. But then... But then you have to have enough are, for everyone to compete. I've got to say, I mean, if, if there are huge numbers of entrants for male and female categories and yeah. about three people enter 
Exactly. So that's the difficulty because and, uh, as and, the Olympics... And to give that gold medal equivalence, I, I, listen, I don't know what the perfect answer is. Exactly. But it is a threat to women's sport, isn't it? Um, I mean, ultimately, yes. And I I, I just don't think unless... The, the, the only way you're going to kind of level the playing field is if you allow, I believe, women to be taking something that can enhance their performance to... Level it out. And that's about the last thing we want to do. Exactly, it, really? because as an athlete, we all know that that's you know not what? right and that's not fair. So. Sporting controversies will go on and on and on. And I want to say thank you, Lisa, for joining me on thank Talking you. Pints. Thank Cheers. you very much indeed. <laughs> Cheers. We are coming towards the end of the programme. It is time for Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in. And, of course, my guest every evening tends to get as many questions fired at them. So here goes. Question number one, Sophie asks, Lisa, what would your advice be to aspiring gymnasts of today? What's the one big piece of advice you'd give? Enjoy it. Feel it. Enjoy it. I like Just that. Just feel it. Stop putting pressure on yourself to perform. Enjoy the freedom of being able to literally fly to learn something, to do something that there are a lot of people cannot do. Enjoy it. Smile. Yes. I like that. That's good. <laughs> Mike asks, sport is riddled with drug abuse, but how can it be stopped? Well, they keep trying to stop it by banning people and banning countries. Mm. But the trouble is, you know, Lisa, you were put on drugs, but they were legal drugs, weren't they? Yeah, painkillers, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... Will we ever end drug abuse in sport? I don't think you're going to ever end drug abuse in everyday life, let alone in sports. So. Good answer. Good answer. Quick, sharp, I like <laughs> that. Daniel asks, will Boris survive Partygate? Well, I did describe it last night, that the fine that he had last week was like your first speeding offence. It's three points on your licence. When you get to 12 points, you get banned. I am certain... Here we are, putting my neck on my light. I like doing this. <laughs> I am certain that Boris will receive more fines, and I say that in plural. He is going to get two, three, four more fines, and I think uh, with each of them that comes, a level of confidence in him drops. I'm not saying uh, that Partygate should end his career, uh, but it's damaging his reputation with the British people. Uh, and, hey, he's got other more important things to deal with, like the cost of living. I think he's in real trouble. May the 5th, the local elections will decide. One viewer asks me, does Biden know what planet he's on? No, he doesn't. He doesn't, and he's dangerous. He said things when he visited Ukraine that, frankly, uh, were, were mad, telling American troops they would, would be in Ukraine soon, saying we would respond uh, like with like to any chemical attacks that were launched. He isn't just a doddery old duffer. He's a danger to world peace. They really should move the 25th Amendment and get rid of him as US president on the grounds. He is not up to the job. There we are. That's a clear opinion for you, isn't it? That's enough from me this evening. Be back with you tomorrow.